Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, we present Lesson 2 from our lecture series on Orthodox Ecclesiology. The topic of today's lesson is the unity of the Church and the mystery of baptism. This podcast was originally recorded in February of 2021. Thank you for joining us and God bless you. All right, so we'll say we'll start with our prayers. Uh, I'll put that on the screen, our prayer, and then we'll chant uh, the Troparion for the Feast of Pentecost, as we always do at the beginning of these lessons, and then we'll jump jump right into uh, our text. So let's see. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of the divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of the gospel teachings. Implants also fear of thy blessed commandments to trample down all kind of desires. We may have their spiritual man of living, both thinking and doing such things will please and to thee. But now the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And to thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting and all holy, good and life-giving spirit, now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Evlogito si Christeo Theo Simon O Pansophus Tu salisan nadixas Cata pensas abstis to pnevma To agion que di afton Tinicumeni saginensas philanthrope doxasi. So let's take a look at our PDF and our material. We're going to be going into lesson two on the unity of the church and the mystery of baptism. So much has uh, come to pass throughout church history around these two issues, so important to the life of the church. Of course, the boundaries laid down at all the ecumenical councils, precisely that's what was happening there. They were laying down the boundaries of the faith, but also in practice, the boundaries of initiation and the three mysteries that are inseparable, baptism, chrismation, and communion, the initiation mysteries and we're going to be looking at baptism in particular, but always remember when we're talking about baptism, we're talking also inseparably about the mysteries of chrismation and communion, which happened in the Orthodox Church and in the ancient church, universally in West and East. Initially in the West, unfortunately, it fell away after uh, not, not too much uh, into the uh, half of the uh, first millennium. The unity of those mysteries as initiation mysteries. So we're going to start our look at the patristic witness of the first two centuries, mainly just highlights. Uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch we'll look at briefly again because he's so important. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian, and Ancient Councils as a um, kind of survey of the main views that were the uh, patristic consensus, the norm in those days. 
Start off with a quote by Yorosov Pelikan, who is, has some tremendous material that he's collected. He's one of the great uh, academic theologians of the last uh, 50 years in terms of church history and patristic teaching, just giving us a lot of material in his books, his five volumes. This is the first, uh, the, the, the uh, emergence of Catholic tradition. Uh, so he says, heresy and schism were closely related both because both of them violated the unity of the church. It is interesting that in all seven epistles of St. Ignatius, the church was explicitly called holy only once, while the unity of the church and the bishop was one of the overriding preoccupations of all the epistles. So much so that it seems inaccurate to conclude but the most important aspect of the church for the apostolic fathers is its unity. So St. Ignatius is going to go back again and again in his epistles to the, to the question of unity, because precisely without that unity, without that, those boundaries, without that, that uh, communion, there is no salvation. So it's all about salvation, of course. It's, it's a sociology that's then... Uh, plays itself out clearly in the ecclesiology and, and the understanding of the church's life. So, um, St. Ignatius is a towering figure who was who set the tone, and it didn't change, according to our uh, historians, but also, as you see, you will see in the text of the Fathers, it was consistent throughout the first four centuries uh, without any divergence in the, in, in, in the perception of the boundaries and the mysteries. So St. Ignatius expresses the early church's general stance towards schismatics and heretics when he writes in his epistle to the Philadelphians, as children of the light and truth flee from division and wicked doctrines. But where the shepherd is, there do ye as sheep follow. And it goes without saying here, the shepherd is an orthodox bishop and not a heretical bishop, right? Because <laughs> unfortunately it needs to be stated today. Uh, people become quite undiscerning in 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 their approach to uh, obedience today. Uh, if you look at church history, you'll see there were many heretical bishops. And so the question obviously is going to arise, well, what do you do when you have a heretical-minded bishop or priest? Well, you don't do obedience. Uh, but that begs a lot of other questions. We're not going to get into it tonight, but it begs a lot of other questions as, well, how do you discern? How do you know? Uh, on what basis can you be disobedient and all the rest? But uh, there's there's no doubt that obedience has to be predicated upon the orthodoxy because orthodoxy is one of the presuppositions for uh, the Eucharist and the and the unity of the church. So these things have to be there for us to have a salvific uh, obedience to hierarchy. So here in the in the writings of the saint, although it's not stated, it's assumed, and there are many things assumed in the patristic text, so we can't just, um, uh, you know, we have to ask those questions and define those terms. Uh, we're talking about orthodox-minded bishops in the church. He goes on, if any man follows him that makes a schism in the church, he shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If anyone walks according to strange opinion, he agrees not with the passion of Christ. Of course, the strange opinion is the heretical teaching, and the schism that's being created, obviously, is uh, a departure from the Orthodox faith that also is assumed here. Uh, it may be not in terms of 
uh, schisms can happen uh, for reasons that are not explicitly dogmatic, but schism itself is a departure from the nature and the dogma of the church. And so every schism, as, as Jerome, St. Jerome uh, famously said, will end up leading to heresy because already from the outset you have a heretical or foreign-minded stance, uh, a non-orthodox ethos that's being brought to bear and creating these uh, schisms for whatever reason. Of course, the passions and pride are always behind every heresy and schism. And finally, he says, within this unity, which is pro proved by communion with an Orthodox bishop, there is the Lord. Outside of this unity, God does not dwell. Okay, so there we have St. Ignatius uh, briefly, just a few excerpts. We have the School of Alexandria, Clement and his disciple Origen, and who played a huge role, even though, unfortunately, Clement had some issues, and Origen, of course, was condemned as for his for heretical teachings, but they were towering uh, teachers of the faith in Alexandria, and many fathers uh, came and learned from them. And this is something we need to remember because we look back and uh, into history at people like Origen or Tertullian, and we have to remember that there was a time when they were orthodox, and their teachings were extremely influential. So we have to we have to discerningly see that not everyone who sat at their foot was a heretic. Obviously, many of the great church fathers sat and learned from them, and there was much to learn. But the, somebody like Saint Gregory Thaumaturgos, uh, who uh, uh, was a disciple of Origen, he also did not adopt uh, the errors of Origen. So uh, we need to keep that in mind uh, when we're looking at this. Uh, origin here uh, got a typo should be en at the end uh so let's look at well the time when saint Irenaeus of leon was flourishing the renowned head of the catechetical school of alexandria clement wrote his work stromata around 190 a.d in which he also declared heretical baptism to be no proper and genuine water and there's another several wonderful clips from uh uh, uh excerpts i should say from saint uh uh, or from Clement, who, which is very important in, in, in fleshing out the Orthodox understanding of baptism. We'll, we'll, repeat, we'll repeat those uh, in future classes. Uh, Origen, Clement's famous disciple and successor at the head of the catechetical school, echoes his teacher's sentiments and calls all who desire to be saved to come to the house of salvation, the church, outside of which no one is saved. Many people say, oh, uh, that's uh, that's Saint Cyprian's famous, and uh, that's a Cyprianit, Cyprian knight uh, uh, rigorism. Well, here we see that actually Origen said it, and many of the early church fathers held it. It's just uh, as Florovsky would will say, uh, it just states the obvious that the church is the body of Christ, and through the church, salvation comes to the world, and in the church, one is uh, purified, illumined. You know, um, so it's not that radical of a statement many people think it is it's not uh, if anyone should go out of it he says he is guilty of his own death so these are these are not just the views of a few this is the views that are the consensus of the fathers in the early church no no doubt about it let's keep going and look at Tertullian, who is called the master for saint cyprian he he read him uh, on a daily basis he was the teacher in north africa for many uh, including uh, St. Cyprian. St. Cyprian uh, was basically a child when he reposed, uh, but they they revered him 
in North Africa. Uh, he wrote a work called De Baptismo on Baptism, uh, and it's the only treatise that's ex that's existent from that exists from that period. Uh, the text expressed not the ideas of one man, but that which was the ecclesiastical doctrine of Christian antiquity, according to uh, uh, Jeffrey Grimshaw in his text on St. Augustine and the Donatist Controversy, the common property of the church long before Tertullian. So as the church fathers, as we know them, and as the church has taught for generations and centuries, the key of being a church father is that you passing on what was passed down to you from the holy apostles. So this is not a radical statement. You know, this, there are, a church father is not a uh, creative, uh, innovative theologian. They are, they are intentionally passing on what they were given. So when we, when we read what, what we hear from St. Cyprian, it's going to be uh, stressed that what he's doing is passing on what he's been taught. Uh, from generation to generation before him, the councils and the teachers that came before him, and Tertullian is one of those. His treatise, but also his summary of the four gifts of baptism and his polemic against Marcion make it clear that by the end of the second century, if not 50 years earlier, the doctrine of baptism, even without the aid of controversy to give it precision, was so fully developed that subsequent ages down to our own have found nothing significant to add to it, and that's uh, Pelican in his Catholic tradition. <clears throat> he also writes, heretics in the church have not the same God, nor one that is the same Christ. And therefore their baptism is not one with ours either, because it is not the same. A baptism which, since they have not it duly, doubtless they have not at all. And we should probably make a note here, we might have a totally different idea of what a heretic is. We don't even use the term many times today. Uh, obviously, this is some. This is before Saint Basil gives us his nice succinct definition and three categories of of uh, heresy, uh, schism, and parasynagogue. Uh, those those are not readily apparent in any of the writings before Saint Basil, although. I would say that he's probably just restating tradition as well in many ways, or just summarizing what he's lived. And so heresy here could include, and I think there's a case to be made that it did include even those that we would probably more readily call schism today. Uh, there wasn't that hard, fast distinction. Those who departed from the communion of the church, they, they came under a general title <clears throat> in those first centuries. Um, Tertullian's words will receive conciliar approval. We learn from St. Cyprian that the African church issued rulings on the matter in a council under the presidency of Agrippi Agrippinus of Carthage, bishop next but one to St. Cyprian. Uh, so the council was held probably in 213. Irenaeus proposed in 202, Tertullian around 220, and Cyprian was born in 200 to 210. So you give a sense of what we're talking about right at the beginning of the third century. The council was attended by about 70 bishops drawn from the provinces of Africa, Numidia, and would have taken place about 213, as I said, not long uh, after St. Irenaeus' uh, repose. Um, so... This is, this is the, the whole tone and is set already long before St. Cyprian comes to the throne. People 
oftentimes want to attribute St. Cyprian with some kind of innovative rigorism. It's, it's really not possible to have that interpretation if you consider the context and the predecessors and the councils that had, that had come uh, in and were in his uh, memory from his childhood and from uh, his fathers and mothers and all those who had lived those events. Uh, so the council ruled that those who are to be baptized who come to the church from among the heretics. Uh, so it's very straightforward, very simple, and St. Cyprian will continue that, uh, sim that, that simplicity, but with a depth uh, and a, uh, a patristic and scriptural uh, 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 development, which is, uh, which is phenomenal. St. Cyprian informs us that from the time of this council until his day, some 40 years later, Quote, so many thousands of heretics in our provinces have been converted to the church and have neither despised nor delayed. Nay, they have both reasonably and gladly embraced the opportunity to attain the grace of the life-giving labor and of the saving baptism. So this, this may be the most ancient council uh, to decide on the matter. Or it may be preceded by a council at Iconium mentioned by St. Fermilion. Bishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia, or those in Senada and many others, according to St. Dionysius of Alexandria. In any case, it's noteworthy that all of these councils agreed, that's the witness we have from St. Dionysius and St. Fermilion, uh, and expressed this consensus of the fathers that they reject the authenticity of heretical baptism. All right, let's keep going we've got a lot to cover so we're not going to do too much we can say a lot but we're not going to we're going to we're going to get to the deeper stuff here and uh, uh, the controversy around the third century this is uh this section will deal with saint cyprian quite a bit and then a little bit with saint Fermilion and a little bit with saint dionysius in uh, as uh, support coming to the basic positions that we see in saint cyprian who again is repeating his master's teaching uh, before Tertullian embraced heresy. In the, in the, in the mid-third century, a sharp controversy erupted wh whether the church should view as authentic the baptisms performed by heretics. The principal spokesmen from this debate were Stephen, Pope of Rome, and St. Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage. Both hearkened back to ecclesiastical precedent in their respective sees and history in order to support their positions. However, the early patristic consensus was expressed by St. Cyprian. Let's read about St. Cyprian a bit. We said he was born in 200 AD. He becomes a Christian in 246, and he's immediately, within two years, by popular acclamation, uh, thrust into the throne of Carthage, Bishop of Carthage. Uh, he and Tertullian were inheritors of older practice and conviction of the African church, according to our scholars that we have on, these, on this time period. The St. Cyprian's characteristics and the key to his whole ministry are to be found in the simple and elementary system of organic unity of St. Ignatius of Antioch. That's according to uh, the introduction to the Antinacian Fathers. Uh, 19th century introduction. Some of the older scholarship, frankly, is uh, more uh, and many times more akin to the orthodox approach than, than, in my experience, contemporary scholarship. Unity, the organic unity of the body of Christ, lies at the heart of his vision of the church. Uh, 
And participation in the reality of the mystery of the kingdom of God presupposes incorporation through the mysteries into a living organism, the head of the me and members of which form an organic whole and an unbreakable unity unknown and unavailable to them that are without. Let's check and see a little bit what another scholar from our day has to say about this time period. And there's so much we could quote, but we're going to just get to the essence of the thing. But Paul and John Zizoulis in his book, Being as Communion, has the following comment, and he has quite a bit uh, that we've uploaded in Patreon uh, and cited uh, for, for, for our, uh, uh, our patrons to read. The connection of the one church with the one Eucharist, the one bishop, the one altar, clearly established already in the teaching of Ignatius, continues through Cyprian well into the fourth century. This is an important quote because it sees the, it, we can see the continuity that this is an, he's an inheritor of what has been all, all, already taught and accepted by the church uh, and is not, he's not innovating at all. One should add to the list that is mentioned here, of course, the one baptism. And it reminds us of St. Paul's, what we saw last week, St. Paul's famous uh, quote from Ephesians, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Of course, that would be included in the one Eucharist, one bishop, one altar. Uh, all of that's going to be in the same context, which is the Eucharist. And it's not with respect to the non-repetition. The one baptism does not per pertain only or even mainly to the idea that you don't repeat it. Obviously, that's it goes without saying. In the church, there's no repetition of baptism. But it refers also to the one, there being one baptism of the one church, right? The one baptism, one church, one Eucharist. Uh, it's not referring to only uh, the number of times one can do, but that it's a part of the unity of the church. So it's unique to the church. Uh, so just as there are indeed many assemblies called the church, which are not uh, churches, but synagogues of Satan, according to Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation refers to the synagogues of Satan, 2.9, uh, there are many sacrifices offered, which are not the one sacrifice. Uh, there are many bishops, which are not overseers of Christ's flock. They're called bishops. They're not, in fact, overseers of Christ's flock. They're not orthodox. There are many altars around which is gathered not the Eucharistic community. And so, too, there are many baptisms or pourings or sprinklings, which do not baptize one, they're not immerse one, initiate one into the one spirit and the one body that is into Christ. So this is, um, this all flows from the early church's experience in ecclesiology. Now, St. Cyprian will hearken back to scriptural passages which focus on and stress the organic unity of the body of Christ. Uh, he lays great emphasis on the empirical unity of the church. And this was expressing the conviction of the church from the beginning. It's not something that he, he created. So he talks about the vine and the branches of our Lord. Ye, I am the vine, ye are the branches, right? And he goes further and he gives the following beautiful uh, description of uh, the ecclesiology of the church, the, the theology of the church. The sun has many rays, but the light is one. 
The branches of a tree are many, but the trunk is one, sitting firmly on its root. Many streams flow from one source, but although the overflowing results from the abundance of waters presents a multiplicity, nevertheless, unity is preserved at their origin. Separate a light from its origin, its unity will not allow the existence of a divided light. Break a branch from a tree, the branch thus broken will not be able to grow. Cut off a stream from its source, the stream thus cut off will dry up. So, very straightforward, very basic, very simple, and yet very true. The organic unity of all of this speaks to the organic unity of the church. Our saint, Saint Cyprian, did not, again, did not innovate, but he follows the Holy Fathers. Let's see how that plays out. Let's see what that means. Like the rays from the sun or streams from the mountain spring, the mysteries flow from the mystery of the church. The mysteries flow from the mystery of the incarnation, which is the church is the continuation of the incarnation throughout history. And we have the Apostle Paul's famous and important uh, description. Which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So soma, body, and pliroma, fullness, these two things are, cor are correlative and closely linked together, the one explaining the other. And according to St. John Chrysostom, they complement, they are the complement of Christ. The pliroma, soma, is the complement of Christ. They go, and they are inseparable. Uh, the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the sacraments, likewise, are corollaries for both describe the divinely instituted means through which grace was communicated. The doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the sacraments, they go inseparably together. You cannot separate the mysteries from the church. Impossible. They are inseparable. So these three now, Christ, the church, Christ is the head, the church is the body, and the mysteries which spring forth from the body's side, look toward the, the crucifixion, what happened, what come out of the side of the Lord, we'll talk about that, are indissolubly linked together. Moreover, the unity of the mysteries necessarily flows from the unity of the head with his body. Just as where his head, where the head is, there the body is too, so too, whenever there is one mystery, especially the mystery of initiation, there are all the mysteries and the mystery of the church. This is a very simple thing, but yet this is totally uh, neglected and negated by many of the contemporary ecclesiologies. Let me stop and remind you, this course is not a just a simple or a basic catechetical introduction to the church. The, the point of this course, one of the points, the aims of this course is precisely to look at church history and look at the events and the, the teachings of the church fathers, in particularly with those aspects which are under assault today, and those aspects which we have a challenge from the contemporary uh, uh, milieu of heterodox and non-orthodox teachings, so that you, the faithful, can understand and protect yourselves from those delusions and those heresies. So we're going to be focusing on those that really are contemporary as well. We're going to be focusing on those aspects which are going to help you navigate 
And this is one of the keys, because today there's this idea that you can have a mystery of baptism, a uh, uh, some other, maybe even the Eucharist, depending on which uh, uh, contemporary ecclesiology outside the church you, you're, you're following. Uh, but mainly baptism is what's usually said, that, that, that we have a common baptism. Whether it's in the Orthodox Church or the, or the Papal Protestant Confession or the Pro Reformed Protestant Confession, you have... You have common baptism, this idea. Of course, this is, this is impossible to even imagine within the context of the first four centuries, what we're examining right now. You'll never see anything like that in the teachings of the fathers. So either the church has changed its nature in our day, and so that we can talk about a divided church that has common mysteries, which is impossible and inconceivable for the church fathers, or we have, people in our day, have apostatized from the teaching uh, of the church and of the church fathers. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what should become apparent uh, by the end of this course, the truth of, of this, uh, which is the truth of this, what, what, what exactly is going on here. Um, all right. Now, the church fathers don't, they're not scientific analysis, academic analysis. They don't come in that way to the church. The church, the theology of the church, its imagery, an idiom, they grow out of the experience of the fathers of encountering the Lord in the Holy Scripture, in the mysteries, in prayer and worship. And so it has an existential character. The, the, the theology is a theology of witness. It's, it's witnessing to what they experience. And it's very clear in the epistles of St. John, the theologian, uh, that this is the case. Uh, it's the experience of the Holy Spirit in the church and the understanding, the orthodox understanding of the church is grounded therein. Uh, and let's look at this John 19.34, which we, we referenced in, in, in the previous slide. The mysteries which spring forth from the body's side. Let's hear what St. John Chrysostom has to say. And you can see here uh, how it's this unity in the mysteries uh, is so uh, is witness to in the fathers, but so important. So the, tech, the the scriptural passage from John 1934 is, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. So John Chrysostom sums up the patristic interpretation of this passage saying with this too, an ineffable mystery was accomplished. For blood and water came out, not simply without a purpose or by chance did these founts come forth, but because by means of these two together, together, the church consists. What two together? Blood and water. What do they mean? The Eucharist and baptism. These two are inseparable. They come out together from the body of the church, the body of Christ. And the initiated in the mysteries know it, being by water indeed regenerated and nourished by the blood and the flesh. Notice how the experience, he points to the experience. The initiated in the mysteries, those who've lived these, this reality, they know this reality. So this is not, somebody was saying in one of the discussions underneath, I think the last week's, or one of these talks that I've given, uh, that they, you know, that there's a circular reasoning among the Orthodox that you can't base it on experience, but that's exactly what the fathers are continually doing. They're not trying to prove 
anything to the heretics or to the non-Orthodox. They're witnessing to an experience and calling all to that experience. And the same is true with Christ who walked on the earth. He didn't go around trying to prove people that he is the Messiah. He just witnessed to it with miracles. He fulfilled the prophecies. He taught the truth uh, and all the rest that was expected uh, and, and was, was uh, need, needful for the salvation of the world. And the church goes about doing the same thing. We're not going to try to prove anything rationally, logically to anyone. So this, this is one of the pitfalls of these discussions online is that well, you, how do you prove what an ecumenical, which, which is an ecumenical council? How can you prove that? It was one of the discussions we had. Um, and, you know, to a certain point, you can describe it. You can say, this is, what it, this is what it's been. This is what it is. This is how we know it. But you're not going to prove that these are authoritative to someone who doesn't have an experience and doesn't have the presuppositions uh, and is approaching it rationalistically, uh, not rationally, but rationalistically. So here he's saying the initiated in the mysteries know it being by water indeed regenerated and nourished by the blood and the flesh. They know by their experience. Hence the mysteries take their beginning that when thou approaches to that awful cup, that awful meaning that all full, full of awe, Thou mayest so approach as drinking from the very side of the Lord. See how realistic the saints, the fathers are. They, they, they love it. They, they, they love to, get, to, to, to connect Christ and the church continually. And that's exactly uh, the, their experience, that this is the body of Christ, not, the, not, not a figure of the body of Christ, not a, not a symbol, but it's, it's the very body uh, of our Lord that we participate in. So this, our saints, as Saint and Saint Cyprian, of course, follows the Holy Fathers. Let's hear what, uh, again, uh, Yaroslav Pelikan has to say about, um, about this. Following St. Ignatius, Saint Cyprian held the bishop to be the focal point of the visible unity of the church. Yaroslav Pelikan has written, for both Ignatius and Cyprian, moreover, the bishop was the key to authentic unity. And schism was identified as party spirit in opposition to him. Therefore, the efforts to superimpose in the second and third centuries a distinction made by Augustine, St. Augustine, Blessed Augustine, and especially by the Reformation between visible and invisible churches have proved quite ineffectual. Well, that's a, anachronistic. They go back into history and they try to say, look, what we've experienced now in the 15th century or uh, in the 5th century uh, is what they were talking about in the 3rd and 4th century. Uh, and he's saying that's not actually true, that's not accurate. On earth, there was only one church, and it was finally inseparable from the sacramental hierarchical institution. Of course, that's true today, and it's true to throughout, the, throughout all 2,000 years of church history, uh, that, it, that it's just like our Lord, right? You could, if you were walking in Jerusalem when he was there, there would be a place in time that you would meet him. Because he became incarnate. And it's the scandal of the particular that you have to be there and here, not, not here, not here, not there. You have, to, you have to go to church in a particular place, particular time, and you have to commune of, of the actual body and blood of Christ. Uh, this whole, uh, this reality of the incarnation that the church lives is a scandal and a crucifixion for many rationalistic minds and many of those who would like to make uh, Christianity into a philosophy or into a mythology or whatever else. Uh, 
So this is the, uh, the hard sayings for those uh, of every age, just like in the time of our Lord, when he turned to his disciples and said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. These are hard sayings and many walked away and many will walk away from the church today when they have to say that this bruised and, and battered body that is the Orthodox church crucified body throughout history, martyrs upon martyrs upon martyrs. That is the body of Christ. And you, under this guise of, you know, this, this wearied historical reality, uh, and yet it's exactly the, the one of extreme humility, the crucified one who is the Lord of glory. And it's the same with the church as well. So Christ is the one who imparts the mysteries. Uh, Christ is the one who uh, gives and is given in all the mysteries. For some reason, they've <clears throat> some people have wrongly taken uh, Saint Cyprian as uh, being uh, as saying that the, the administrator himself imparts forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. The famous. Um, mistake of uh, the the Donatist, uh, that it's of not, a, and it's not of the church. And of course, he believed it's of the church, uh, that, and it's Christ himself that is given and is give, gives and is given. St. Cyprian's fundamental thought, however, was that these gifts are found in the church, and the minister is to be understood as the agent of the church. His statements about ministers not being able to give what they do not have our shorthand for this central claim. Uh, and St. Familian has the same thinking. This is the orthodox outlook on things. Uh, this helps so much for us to navigate. So if some priest is unworthy because of a moral life that's not according to the gospel, uh, or is intellectually, uh, or whatever it might be, that is really in, an impediment to his proper uh, ministering of the uh, uh, to the people of God, uh, we always have to remember that it's Christ who is given and, is, and, and gives himself in all the mysteries. We are encountering Christ when we go to confession, when we go to uh, the Eucharist, when, when we, uh, in all the mysteries, all the interactions, it's Christ who has chosen to work through human beings, fallible human beings. He's chosen to be present in them and through them, just like he spoke to his apostles and gave his apostles the, the keys of the kingdom and the power to, to forgive and to, and to hold and all the rest. Uh, so let's never confuse ourselves. And this is an important point because it's, some, some can become, uh, can go off the track, uh, the, the narrow path with such thoughts. Um, St. Cyprian doesn't just say that there's a problem with heretical baptism uh, because it's outside the boundaries of the church. That is the foremost problem. Outside the union, obviously, we've said that outside of Christ, there is, there's no mysteries. Outside the church, there are no mysteries. But he also recognizes that the waters of heretical baptism are not only unprofitable, but otherwise uh, benign or neutral. No, they are blasphemous and detrimental, in fact. He calls heretical baptism adulterous and unhallowed water and sees as, as the St. Athanasius the Great after him, false faith as the source of false 
mysteries. This is what he says, letter 72. If he believes what is false, he could not receive what is true, but rather he has received things adulterous and profane according to what he believed. This matter of profane and adulterous baptism, Jeremiah the prophet plainly rebukes, saying, Why do they who afflict me prevail? My wound is hard. Whence shall I be healed? Why, while it has indeed become unto me as deceitful water, which has no faithfulness. And so he's going back to the prophet as a way to make his point here. The Holy Spirit makes mention by the prophet of deceitful water which has no faithfulness. What is the deceitful and faithless water? Certainly that which falsely assumes the resemblance of baptism and frustrates the grace of faith by a shadow, shadowy pretense. All right, we'll go, go on to this ecclesiological point, very important. Uh, the, it is not a small thing. And what, I, I, what made an impression on me when, you, when I was studying this uh, and examining this years ago and looking at it again in the last week or so, <clears throat> is the, how much little um, attention is paid to the conciliar witness before Cyprian and, and, and among the, uh, the, the faithful in Africa and in, in Asia, in, in Asia Minor. Uh, St. Cyprian calls together, following their uh, lead. And this is so important because the conciliar, the synodical nature of the church is so important and it's under attack in our day. It's under attack in our day, unfortunately. Uh, there is a, a creeping and rising papalism within the church, uh, a worldliness. Uh, papalism is a, is a, is a, is a uh, offshoot of secularism. Uh, this idea uh, of investing one, one bishop above all the other bishops or one bishop in a local church above all other bishops have taken on a, uh, not just a position of honor, but of power over uh, above the other bishops. That is a sign of a worldliness that has crept in. It's not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, who rebuked the uh, desire for thrones in his disciples. Uh, but um, uh, rather the synodical and conciliar witness is so important uh, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, it's said in the first council in Jerusalem. And here again, he calls not one, not two, but three councils to deal with this question. And again and again, all of the fathers assembled in North Africa come to a, an agreement on what should be done in terms of <clears throat> dealing with the heretical groups and whether there could be uh, a, a departure from the rule of baptism. So he has a council in 255, 21 bishops, 256, 71 bishops. And then in response to Pope Stephen's intransience and, and stridency, he has a third one in September of the same year, 87 bishops in North Africa. The last council, uh, the bishops were unanimous in expressing the consensus patrum of the time, declaring the church as the sole dispenser of the Holy Mysteries. The church is the sole dispenser of the Holy Mysteries. It was in response to the fanatical, the fanatical stance of Pope Stephen, that the last and largest of the three councils was called. And Pope Stephen is quoted in letters by St. Cyprian as saying, and this is what they're, they're responding to the theology, the letters of St. Cyprian are responding from this time period uh, to these ideas. 
If anyone therefore come to you from any heresy whatsoever, very key point here, from any heresy, there's no dis distinction of, uh, among the heretics uh, at all. Uh, so what, from whatever heresy they come, let nothing be innovated or done, which has not been handed down. And of course, the claim of, of Pope Stephen was that he's just doing what has been handed down to him in Rome. Uh, and the question is, well, if it's not what's been handed down from the apostles, as St. Familiarin says in his letter, well, then what good is it? Uh, we're not interested in just custom. We're interested in holy tradition, which is given by the holy apostles. But that's the claim that we're just doing what we've always done in Rome. And he says that hands be imposed on him for repentance. Since the heretics themselves in their own proper character do not baptize, such as come to them from another, but only admit them to communion. So apparently from this passage, <clears throat> And we have to trust St. Cyprian that he's obviously he's not fabricating the words. He has no reason to do that. There's nobody, I don't think anyone can write, uh, reasonably say he's, this is not the words of Pope Stephen. Uh, the, apparently he's saying, look, they don't do it, so we should not. And of course, St. Cyprian and St. Familian and St. Dionysius respond, it doesn't matter what they're doing. It's none of our, we're not interested in what they're doing. We're the church. The church doesn't have to uh go along with what they're doing, try to win them over in this way or anything like that. It's very instructive for us in our day and age when we see this happening all the time. Uh, hierarchs and, and, and church synods trying to, uh, you know, appease and, and um, mollify the heterodox uh, in, a, in a diplomatic political way. That's not, not what <clears throat> the saints of old did with uh, those outside and those professing another uh, foreign uh, teaching. Pope Stephen, in holding a fierce stance against the consensus of the fathers, St. Dionysius and St. Vermilion and others in Asia Minor, was basing himself on, number one, the customs held in Rome. This is what we've always done, he said. On the authority he claimed he had as the Bishop of Rome, uh, not something uh, that unfortunately lacked in Rome, uh, attributed the efficacy of baptism to the name of Christ, the name of Christ, no matter where nor in what manner the baptism occurred, the name of Christ was, was called upon, and it uh, means also the Holy Trinity, uh, then he considered it to be uh, have efficacy. And finally, makes no distinction at all between heretics and schismatics, such that St. Cyprian concluded that any heresy whatsoever included Marcion, Valentius, and Apelles, some of the worst uh, most egregious in, of the heretics in terms of their teaching. Uh, so the heretic was baptized by the power of the name and yet nevertheless did not possess the Holy Spirit. This was a consensus of all, including Pope Stephen, including uh, later on you'll we'll, we'll look at the famous, uh, the well-known text from North Africa, which was uh, uh, in opposition to St. Cyprian's teaching, which was supporting Pope Stephen's uh, which came later, which was uh, on rebaptism, and that author, as well as Pope Stephen, all of uh, everyone uh, accepted the teaching that there is no Holy Spirit outside the church. Very important. Third century, Metropolitan John Zulus commemorates this: the consensus of all, no matter what side of the debate, there is no Holy Spirit given. There's no imparting of the mysteries of the Holy Spirit in the mysteries. Uh, that whatever's happening outside, according to the author of the 
book, uh, which, which is expressing most likely the, the thought of, of Pope Stephen as well. He says that, well, it's a water baptism, just water. There's no Holy Spirit there in the, in the mysteries of the heterodox. Um, and so they don't possess the Holy Spirit. And so they could only be imparted the Holy Spirit through the imposition of Episcopal hands. So the question then becomes, without the Holy Spirit, what mystery are we talking about? What is happening that we can call it a baptism? What kind of baptism is that? Uh, if those outside the church, in order to supposedly <clears throat> to be supposedly baptized, he says to be baptized, you, you have to have the Holy Spirit. Why are hands laid on them for receiving the Spirit when they convert to the church? So it's you, know, you, you can't. He, he's saying you talk about a baptism, but there's no Holy Spirit. Is this is this possible? And if you're if it's really a Holy Spirit, if you're really a baptism, then obviously the Holy Spirit is there because that's that's what. Is happening in the mystery of baptism. So then why lay hands on them? So there's no Holy Spirit, then what is this baptism? If the heretic or schismatic is lacking in the Holy Spirit, he's not, is he not necessarily lacking in the other, which is the forgiveness of sins that come through baptism, which includes uh, the uh, action of the Holy Spirit. So he says the gifts belong together. They cannot be separated. The Holy Spirit is not given by measure, he says. It's poured out altogether on the believer, indeed. And so you have the very beginnings, what will then become over time in the West, this idea of somehow having one in incomplete communion eventually. It looks like this is the beginning of that idea, which will then flower and take off at the Second Vatican Council. You have people who are somewhat Christians, which is impossible, of course, in the Orthodox and patristic view of things. Moreover, the water and the spirit belong together in baptism, he says. And since we are a spiritual reborn in baptism, it is absurd to claim that he who has put on Christ is unable to receive the Holy Spirit whom Christ sent. So St. Cyprian argues strenuously for the unity of the mysteries, strenuously. And he wants to keep all of the acts together in one unified ceremony. And this is exactly what we are struggling to do today as Orthodox, to maintain that unity. It's essential. We talked about it. Christ, the church, and the mysteries, all one. The two from the side of our Lord, uh, all of it together, the unity. If, that, is that, if that's lost, then the unity of the church is lost. So remember now, St. Cyprian is dealing with a Pope, Pope Stephen, who is very strident and autocratic. He calls him a false Christian. He calls him a false apostle. He calls him a deceitful worker. Uh, he threatens the people in Asia Minor with excommunication if they persist in their support of the, of the practice of baptizing heretics. Uh, and Instead of any kind of uh, response in like, St. Cyprian simply calls a council. And that's how he deals with this. St. Cyprian continues, He who is sent will be greater than, he, than him who sends. He's talking about the thinking of Pope Stephen and, the, and those who support this idea. So that one baptized without may begin indeed to put on Christ, 
but not be able to receive the Holy Spirit, as if Christ could either be put on without the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit be separated from Christ. Moreover, it is silly to say that although the second birth is spiritual, by which we are born in Christ through the labor of regeneration, one may be born spiritually among the heretics, where they say that the Spirit is not. For water alone is able, not able to cleanse away sins, to sanctify man, unless he have also the Holy Spirit. Wherefore, it is necessary that they should grant the Holy Spirit to be there where they say that baptism is, or else there is no baptism where the Holy Spirit is not, because there cannot be baptism without the Holy Spirit. This is a hugely important point. He is prophetic in his analysis. This is exactly what will happen in the West and what will come to be at the Second Vatican Council. In these later generations, starting mainly after the schism, this is when things take off, but take fulfillment in the Second Vatican Council, they will change this idea and they will give and, and, and grant the Holy Spirit and the and the, the the baptism be an efficacious baptism with the grace of the Holy Spirit to all the heterodox, all those who are not in the communion of the uh, Roman uh, Church, the the Latin Papal Protestant Confession. Uh, they will say this, uh, even if you're not a part of the uh, Church here that we, the communion that we have, you're among the Protestants and you have. Maybe you don't even recognize there is a Eucharist. You have no Eucharist, but you, you baptize. Well, they, will, they now recognize that as uh, a beginning, uh, a part, uh, as St. Uh, Cyprian says here, um, that they uh, begin to indeed put on Christ. Uh, and so there is... That and, they, and they grant that the Holy Spirit is working and that, that, that the person is initiated uh, somehow partially, incompletely into the mystery of the church. So this is, this is what will happen. And this is, he prophesied it. He said it here that this is what will happen. It's exactly what, what has come to pass. Yoroslav uh, uh, Pelican says here that, that whatever the precise moment of the coming of the Holy Spirit may have been thought to be, what St. Cyprian here is saying is a Catholic doctrine. In other words, they cannot be separated. Uh, the mysteries and the, and the Spirit of God cannot be separated. All right, going on, because there's a lot to cover. Uh, birth or baptism and the Spirit in Christ alone. Uh, St. Cyprian's response to this idea of a spiritless baptism is profound yet simple and proven to be in agreement with the heart of the tradition the, the ascetic Hesychast tradition of the Niptic Fathers. Listen to what he says, and then we're going to go and we're going to uh, see this even more deeply with St. Seraphim of Sarah. No one is born, he says, by receiving the Holy Spirit through the imposition of hands, but through baptism. As in the case of the first man, Adam, only by being already born does he receive the Spirit. It was after God had molded him that he breathed into him, through his face, the breath that gave him life. Someone must uh, already be in living existence to be able to receive the Spirit. Otherwise, he cannot receive it. Birth, in the case of Christians, is at their baptism. So, that the giving birth in baptism and sanctification exists with the bride of Christ alone. Very interesting that the teaching here is in 
total agreement with St. Seraphim of Serov and the patristic niptic tradition. St. Seraphim laments in his day that, um, let me give a little background to that for a second. So St. Cyprian expresses this uh, in a simple way, the original Christian knowledge without which the true meaning of such key passages of scripture is obscured, if not lost, and with it the purpose of the Christian life itself. Far from being overly logical or narrow and dry, uh, superficial reading, which some might conclude, uh, the clarity and the simplicity of his words show their genuineness. All things are simple to those who find knowledge, as it said in the Proverbs. So this is all made apparent when one considers the divine words spoken nearly 1,600 years later by the great Russian ascetic and Hesychus father, St. Seraphim Seraph to Motovilov, who agrees fully with St. Cyprian's exegesis of Genesis. The saint laments that in his day, Christians had nearly abandoned the true Christian life under the pretext of education and had reached such a darkness of ignorance, he says, such a darkness of ignorance that the ancients understood so clearly seems to us almost inconceivable. Because men do not seek the grace of God, they misunderstand the words of Scripture and remain without enlightenment. So in particular, he laments how people interpreted the passage from Genesis, and God fashioned man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his face the breath of life, and man became a living soul. As meaning that there was neither human soul nor spirit in Adam, but only flesh. He says, this interpretation is wrong. Adam was not created dead, but an active living being. If the Lord God had not breathed afterwards into his face the, this breath of life, this, that is the grace of our Lord and God, the Holy Spirit, proceeds from the Father and rests in the Son and is sent into the world for the Son's sake, Adam would have remained without having within him the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who raises him to a godlike dignity. But when the Lord God breathed into Adam's face the breath of life, then according to Moses' word, Adam became a living soul that is completely and in every way like unto God, according to the image and likeness, and like him forever immortal. Although the Holy Spirit was certainly present and working at Adam's birth, he was not given internally to Adam until the breath of the Lord. So Adam was created and existed, but only truly became alive and godlike with the breath of the Spirit. Likewise, baptism as a new birth is necessarily first, for it reconciles man to God. Yet without chrismation, the quickening of man's spiritual energies and his continual ascent to the likeness of God, uh, they are halted. So baptism is a new birth. It's necessarily first, and it reconciles to God. Uh, the birth and becoming a living soul, that is, baptism and the energy and seal of the Holy Spirit, are inseparable expressions of the one creation, the recreation of man within the paradise of the church. Neither separation of birth and life nor delay of them is possible. You can't separate these, these things. You can't separate baptism and chrismation. You can't separate the creation of Adam and the breathing in to talk about completion, fulfillment, life in Christ. can't do that. It's impossible to conceive of multiple expressions, such that we have heretical and schismatic bodies uh, doing this, giving this expression of the one in-breathing from the one Lord by the one Spirit. 
So neither a foreign source nor a fallen source is possible for this new birth and this new life. It's the it's Christ himself in his church and nowhere outside of that. So as once spiritual life flowed from the mouth of the Lord unto Adam, it now flows from the side of the Lord to recreate Adam. Let me say that again. It flowed from his mouth into Adam, and now it flows from the side of the Lord to recreate Adam. What's, what's the side of the Lord? The baptism, chrismation, Eucharist, all the unity of the mysteries all together. It's coming from the side of the Lord, which is the church. And so we see here, St. Cyprian truly is a representative of the general patristic consensus <clears throat> up until our day. Now we have the anonymous uh, tract from uh, North Africa, which is basically uh, believed to be an expression of Pope Stephen. We don't have a lot of Pope Stephen's writings. We have a few reproduced in St. Cyprian's letters. But uh, it's believed that this tract was essentially representing the views that were held by Pope Stephen and those in Rome. So let's hear what he has to say. It's important. Helps us to get a, a better sense of uh, where we are uh, with respect to not just the debate then, but also what people s uh, say today in our day and age. He says, if however baptism should have been administered by strangers, let this matter be amended as it can and as it allows. So strangers would be those, obviously, among the schismatic or heretical groups. Because outside the church, there is no Holy Spirit. You see how he has the same consensus, that no one doubts that. But today, everyone, there are many people who doubt that. Many people believe that the Holy Spirit is throughout all the different heterodox groups in the Orthodox Church. They make no distinction of the energies and the actions and the presence of the Spirit. There's no distinctions made. It's in the church, outside the church, doing the same thing. It's not, though. Church in the church is purifying, illuminating, deifying, and those have presuppositions, those energies of God. Outside the church is guiding and enlightening in a different way those to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's 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 uh, it's showing the path to those who have good disposition. It's the sustaining spirit, uh, the, the divine energies that sustain the world, uh, the providential energies, etc. But it 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 cannot we cannot lose all the distinctions here. And so he says here, look, outside the church, there's no Holy Spirit. What he means is not that the Holy Spirit does not support all of creation and keep everyone alive. Obviously, all everything is in the Holy Spirit in that sense. He means there's no mysteriological, there's no mysteries, there's no Holy Spirit that purifies, illumines, and deifies outside the church. That's what he means, all right? Uh, sound faith, moreover, cannot exist. Look at that, what he says. So orthodoxy cannot exist. The Holy Spirit, the mysteries, the divine energies of purifying, illuminating, deifying cannot exist outside the church. Obviously, you cannot speak of the Eucharist outside the church. That would be impossible. So the presuppositions of the church do not, cannot, they cannot be reproduced outside the church. And yet we have theologians, brand name theologians, who tell us that heterodox and orthodox Eucharist are the same. That, that we have we share the Eucharist. Well, if we shared the Eucharist with the heterodox or any, any non-Orthodox group, we would be the church. There would be the one church, and we would have a divided church, we had, uh, which is an heretical teaching. So we have, a, unfortunately, an increasing chasm from traditional Orthodox ecclesiology found even among the those who spoke against the teaching of Cyprian and the tradition. Even they recognized what today many people do not, unfortunately. 
uh, he says, uh, no sound faith, no Holy Spirit, not uh, alone among heretics, but even among those who are established in schism. So he says, even the schismatics don't have sound faith and the grace of the divine mysteries, the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, they who repent and are amended by the doctrine of the truth and by their own faith, which subsequently has been improved by the purification of their heart, ought to be aided only by spiritual baptism. That's an interesting phrase, spiritual baptism. What he means is that laying out of hands uh, and by the administration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so there's just a water baptism, he's saying, outside among them. And now he's gonna, they're going to receive the Spirit. So he's dividing the mysteries. He's saying that, the, that there is such thing as a water baptism in Orthodoxy. We've never heard of that. What is that? We don't believe in a water baptism. That was happening before. That's when, when Paul went. We're going to talk about that. Paul went and he, he, asked, the, he asked some of the disciples of John, Did, were you baptized with the Holy Spirit? And they said no. And then the Holy Spirit descended. That was the same event. One, one and the same. It wasn't divided. It wasn't one time the Holy Spirit did, together. Uh, and, and even with Cornelius and others who the Holy Spirit descended, he immediately baptized them. So these things are united. They're united. You see how the order of things could even be changed? We're going to talk about that as well. St. Vermillion talks about that. Uh, so they're going to get, they receive a spiritual baptism, whatever that is for him, uh, by the imposition of the bishop's hands, by the administration of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, the perfect seal of faith has been rightly accustomed to be given in this manner and on the principle in the church. So he again maintains that only in the church can you have the right faith. Only in the church can you have the mysteries. All right, so let's respond to this because this is important. This, this, these are arguments you're going to hear in our day and age as well. So he allows for the autonomy of baptism. And this is very important. There, mysteries cannot be autonomous. We don't have autonomous mysteries. He allows for that, or at least some kind of baptism. He allows for there to be outside among strangers. Uh, I want you to compare that with the words of St. Gregory the Theologian in his oration on holy baptism, which he explicitly says that baptism not be given by one who is a stranger, alotrios, stranger, to the church. So St. Gregory Theologian does not agree with the author on rebaptism, that such a thing is possible. Uh, St. Cyprian, if he had the opportunity to respond, which he apparently did not, he would, I think, would have said, can strangers to the church and the Lord initiate other strangers into the bridal chamber? When does that happen? How does that happen? We don't know that. Only the children of the bridal chamber can, can have been given the privilege of serving the bridegroom in this capacity. All right. So <clears throat> this is just foreign to the whole experience of the initiation and of the, of the uh, uh, you know, the church has its doors. They close and you have to be initiated. So strangers can't do that. Strangers cannot do that. Although it has, it has taken a step away from the consensus pattern. This is now this is something interesting that we have to recognize because not even this is kept any longer in many places. So he goes into this strange reality of, of recognizing strangers as baptizing. And, and you, you'll read later on in Trent that they will recognize uh, unbelievers and Jews uh, and Muslims and anybody who does the form, keeps the keeps what and has the intention of uh of the uh, latin church uh and and says the words they're going to recognize those as real mysteries that's where that's how far they're going to go away from the vision we have here in the saints of, of the unity of the mysteries uh but this is a for, this is a first test a first taste of that 
that will come uh, hundreds of years later. So uh, number two, though, he, he, he maintains certain aspects of the patristic vision, which are very important. So he goes away from the consensus patrum on the question of baptism per se. Uh, he still strives to maintain the oneness of the church and exclusivity of the Holy Spirit's working mysteriologically within her. So he, he tries to keep that unity. He knows he has to. There's, there's not even a thought that you could somehow theor have a different theory about this. Uh, it's a conviction that was unanimously held. Following the Holy Fathers, he maintains the integrity of the body and of the faith and the prerequisite of unity with the head in order to possess the right faith. He does not accept the idea that the right faith can exist apart from the communion of the church or that other criteria besides visible unity with the church alone suffice for Orthodox. You've got to be in the church. You've got to have the faith. You've got to be in the church, though, too. So having an ideological assent, accepting theoretically the faith, does not make you a member of the church. You need both. To be initiated. Uh, thus, it's not surprising that, as was common at this time, he makes no distinction between the baptism of heretics and schismatics. Notice he says schismatics and heretics are the same. Because the, the question was not what they believed in their head. The question is, where are they? Are they in communion? Are they in the body? And this is something very important later on when we start to interpret the canons later on. You see this all the time with, with serious people in the church. They say, well, the church accepts the Arians this way or the Eunomians that way or the papal Protestants that way because of something that these groups believe. But that's actually not the mind of the church. That's not what the Kodivadis fathers will say later on following the early church fathers. It's not a question of what they believe. That's a question of a proximity in terms of how many hurdles they have to get come back to the faith, how far they have fallen theoretically, theologically in their expression. And that's a sign of their spiritual state. But the minute you depart from existentially from the communion of the church, you're out. You're outside. Anybody who doesn't commune for three weeks is considered out of communion. He needs to come back. And, and So that's the experience of the church. It's very real. It's very existential. It's, very, uh, it's not uh, ideological, theoretical, philosophical. We don't have these kind of criteria. It's a practical, down-to-earth, real experience that you have to maintain if you're going to be in communion with God. Then we go on on the rebaptism track number two, response number two. Uh, on the other hand, in agreement with Pope Stephen, he bases his, his severance of baptism from the church on the power of the name of Jesus, which has great power do not to be disdained and which ought to be received as a certain beginning of the mystery of the Lord. And here, here, brothers and sisters, his whole thing falls apart. I mean, he really departs and we'll see uh, St. Cyprian's response, uh, which is uh, very clear. This is, an this is totally incompatible with the conviction that the right faith can exist only within the communion of the church. Since merely the invocation of the name without the right faith, and therefore outside the communion of the church, does not suffice for the vein of grace. He contradicts himself. He contradicts himself because on the one hand he says faith is only impossible in the church. Now he says that the calling on the name alone it becomes magical. You have to have the right faith. St. Cyprian says, in response, there is no ground for anyone for the circumvention of Christian truth opposing to us the name of Christ and saying, all who are baptized everywhere and in any manner in the name of Jesus Christ have obtained the grace of baptism. You know, you know why they've rejected St. Cyprian in medieval Catholicism? Because they adopted 
the view of the uh, more or less the view of the anonymous author of this tract and they they've rejected saint cyprian's uh, presentation unfortunately and then they end up uh, with absurd things like saying a muslim or a jew or a atheist or anybody as long as they're doing the externals and they're, they're intending to do what the church does they can baptize so this is where things end up and and this is the nature of her of heretical delusional teaching it it begins smaller sometimes very small and then it grows over time if it's not dealt with uh, but he says, um, when Christ himself speaks, he says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, he forewarns and instructs us that no one should be easily deceived by false prophets and false Christ in his name. Many, he says, shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. Uh, and shall deceive many. And afterwards, he added, but take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. Whence it appears that all things are not at once to be received and assumed, which are boasted of in the name of Christ, but only those things which are done in the truth of Christ. All right, so our Lord himself has, gives us two examples of where the name alone will not benefit you. It's not possible. Call a name, Lord, Lord, but I don't know you, he says. Or the name, they will come in my name and they are false prophets. So on what basis can we say the name alone, when our Lord himself rejects it, uh, can become, uh, have the power of initiating people into the church without the truth and the faith and the existential continuation of the incarnation, the actual communion in the church. Now, St. Uh, Cyprian is not just following the Holy Fathers. The Holy Fathers are following him. Listen to what St. Athanasius, the great, will say about 100 or so years, 140 years later, uh, more or less, I'm not sure exact dates, I think that's about right, but 100 years later, uh, he, uh, he's talking about the Arians, the Manichaeans, the Phrygians, the disciples of Paul of Samosata. What does he say? For not he who simply says, Lord, O Lord, gives baptism. But he who with the name also has the right faith. Sound familiar? On this account, therefore, our Savior also did not simply command to baptize, but says first, teach, then thus baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First teach, first the faith, first catechism, first initiation, first humility, first submission to the church, then baptize that the right faith might follow upon learning, and together with the right faith might come the consecration of baptism. We're going to come back to this in next, next next lesson. We're going to talk about the whole quote. I'll give you the whole quote and how important this is. St. Athanasius the Great in his treatise uh, against the Arians, hugely important, a witness to the common tradition and totally in sync with St. Cyprian of Carthage. Pope Stephen, whose views is most he's, is, is, is most likely represented by this, this, this tract, shows himself to be outside the consensus patrum when making baptism into simple, simple water rite. This, if this, this uh, tract is making baptism into a simple water rite, autonomous from the church, her faith, her mysteries. And even if they still hold, following the Holy Fathers, that outside the church, the Holy Spirit cannot be imparted mystologically. Even if they keep that, they're still departed from the tradition. Let's look at St. Cyprian and the economy of God. I think this is important because later on we're going to talk about the economy, economia, uh, and the crivia, exactitude and economy. 
in Saint uh, next week in Saint Basil the Great. <clears throat> so it's very important to understand that Saint Cyprian talks about it as well. Many people don't understand this. Doesn't talk about it in the exact same ways as Saint Basil will, but it's there. And he's very discerning, is understanding that God is not ultimately subject or bound to his own laws. But nevertheless, he does not transgress them when surpassing or suspending them in order to fulfill them by another route. Uh, and this is at the heart of the church's pastoral economy. I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. Let's look at this page, at this uh, uh, card here. Uh, early on in the debate, before we get to the other more developed view, somebody asked St. Cyprian, what then shall become of those who in past times, coming from heresy to the church, were received without baptism? Very good question, right? People have that question today. What's going to happen to people? And it's an interesting reply. It's an interesting reply. I think it's important. His reply revealed <clears throat> uh, the deep trust he had in the providential care of the Lord for his church and for every soul. The Lord is able by his mercy to give indulgence and not to separate from the gifts of his church those who by simplicity were admitted into the church and in the church have fallen asleep. So he's talking about people who have already departed this life. And we have every reason to believe that if they had not departed this life, along with St. Familian, who says it very clearly in response to St. Dionysius in, in one of his letters, he rebukes St. Dionysius, who does not want to correct the error. And St. Cyprian, I have believe, although I don't have a reference, was of the same mind. Because he says here, those who've fallen asleep. But he says, look, God's going to take care of it. So he's, he's, he's nodding to the fact that, of course, the, the same Lord who saved the thief on the cross without a water initiation, water baptism, he had baptism of blood, but he didn't have the baptism that the Lord said all should have. Uh, this economy of God that God is above all his works and above all his laws that he can take care of. But I think this is the implication here. Uh, he says more elsewhere, which, which we don't have time to quote. But so there's a sense of the economy of God, absolutely in St. Cyprian. And there's more, there's more references that are even more specific. Let's talk now, let's, the, the question of economy and freedom of God here. Uh, we talked, we said that there's this, at the heart of the church's pastoral economy, there's this idea that God, uh, who's ultimately not bound by his own laws, uh, does not transgress them when surpassing or suspending them in order to fulfill them by another route. That's economy. Right? Economy is a, temporal, a temporary suspension of the norm or the acrivia or the exactitude because of the circumstances demanded. There's some extenuating circumstances, an exception. And so it's a temporary part, uh, departure from, the, from, the, from the, 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 the exactitude of the canon or the exactitude of the, of the commandment, and it goes by another route, but it returns to the exactitude. This is very important. Economia is salvific. Economia is salvific. Now, listen to this. The bishop, while bound to observe and preserve the sacred ordinances of the faith without alert, altering or abolishing him in the least, is nonetheless empowered by Christ to manage them, or if need be, to transcend them in order to ultimately fulfill them by other means. So <clears throat> this is exactly what Christ did in his economy, didn't he? Exactness of the first path of salvation of Adam and Eve, having been forfeited 
but the first formed. He came and dwelt among us not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it by revealing grace and truth and giving men the power to become sons of God through faith. That's the economy of Christ in his economy of salvation. It's exactly what he did. That's exactly what happens in the church as well. We have the ecclesia, we have the exactitude, we have a departure. So we need to talk about this because we're going we're gonna to see it very quickly in St. Basil's teaching. I'm going to just mention it here. We're going to come back to it next week. So economia is the, is the term in Greek for household management, ikos and nomos. Nomos is law, ikos is house, the law of the house. All right? The law of the church, the law of the, 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 the management of the church probably would be the best way to put it. So the principle, this principle has never been doubted, never been, uh, it's always been accepted universally by all the church fathers. Uh, and of course, the presuppositions of when it can be enacted, the discernment one needs and how it's done is, of course, up to debate. But the principle is not. And so we can never take that away from, uh, from the, the pastor. The pastor always has this. And if we did, we would become very legalistic and it would be uh, the, the end of pastoral work among the faithful. But there are obviously guidelines for this. It's not a free-for-all. You can't just do whatever you like and call it economia. St. Basil the Great makes two references in his canons having to do with reception. Why am I pointing this out? Obviously, there are references in many places in the Church Fathers, but particularly having to do with how do we receive heterodox into the Church, how do we receive the heretics. Why do I say that? Because people, some people, are claiming that you uh, that this, this economia does not apply to the reception of converts. In fact, somebody so great as Florovsky made this error, and there's been a few who have pointed this out. This is an error that it cannot be applied to the mysteries. It cannot be applied, but it's right here in the canons of Saint Basil. They, they like to interpret that away and say, no, 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 that's not really what he's talking about. He says it right here. He says, katatinasien. <laughs> In so much, however, as it has seemed best to some of those in the regions of Asia, economies for the sake of economy, this translation has extraordinary concession. I don't think that's a very good translation, but anyway. Uh, to the many, to accept their baptism, let it be accepted. Now, this is not an overturning of the Ecrivia of St. Cyprian. He commemorates St. Cyprian, and he, he commemorates him and St. Familian approvingly. We're going to talk about it next week. I'm getting ahead of myself. But it is exactly the application of the exception that keeps the rule. He goes on in Canon 47, which is very clear. And I'll just read the Greek, the English, because we don't have time. Precisely as in the case of the present-day Romans, for the sake of economy. So he's interpreting the Roman practice of his day of accepting by a, another means besides baptism as economy. I'm not sure the Romans understood it that way. I, I, I would hope that, that would be, there would be a consensus there. But it does, I'm not sure that's the case. It doesn't seem to be the case, at least in, in Pope Stephen. Uh, and so in that context, he's certainly saying, look, they, there's economy there. But he says, look doesn't matter to us. We will baptize. And we'll come back to that. It's very important uh, to understand the context because people get very confused about this today. All right, we're almost, we're almost done. We're going to blow through some of these because we've, we've gone way over an hour and a half already. I'm going to actually skip this one because this is more of the same about the economy. We'll go to the next one. Christ-centered equals church-centered. All right, so let's, let's just note the, the love of 
and the center of everything, which is the church. For those who are not churched, for those who don't understand why the church is, uh, Christ is all in all in the church. Uh, St. Cyprian speaks of the Lord's mercy in, in, in such instances, right? Where we were citing above. Um, he's talking about the economy of God in, in, in the church. Uh, even then, he's always has the center and the criterion of his thought is the church. It's the gifts of the church for those admitted to the church and those who fall asleep in the church. Okay, so the, the exceptions do not at all overturn the acrivia of, uh, of the boundaries and of, of, of the necessity for all the mysteries. Uh, from his mouth could flow just as effort, effortlessly and genuinely the sentiments of St. John Chrysostom would utter some 140 years later. It's the same spirit, same mind of the two great fathers. Take refuge in the church, he says. Abide in the church. Be clothed with her raiment. Rest on her foundation. There are many stars, but only one sun. There are many ways of living, but only one paradise. There are many temples, but only one mother of them all. There is the body, the eye, the finger, but all of these make up but one man. You see, again and again, you find this all over St. John Chrysostom's writings. It talks about the oneness, the unity, the, the, the organic uh, nature of the unity in the church and how everything has to happen in the church for the church in Christ for Christ. These are synonymous. Now we're going to move on to quickly to St. Fermilion, who's a very important figure, unknown, not paid attention to too much, but he was hugely important for some of the councils that happened in Asia Minor. And he was a predecessor, as I said, on the throne of Caesarea to St. Basil. And he was a major support of St. Uh, uh, Cyprian and his, his, uh, for I had given him for reading for the ninth course his uh, Epistle seventy four because it's very formative and important. We'll just talk a little bit about what he some points he made here in response to Pope Stephen. Saint Fermilian, Archbishop of Caesarea and predecessor of Saint Basil, joined Saint Cyprian in resisting both the errors of Saint Pope Stephen and his ecclesiastical bullying. He rejects the claim of Pope Stephen was following the tradition of the apostles because the heresies challenging the Church. At the time, arose later than the apostles. Moreover, the church in Asia Minor had always kept the true practice of rejecting heretical baptism as unlawful and unholy immersion. Note they were immersed. They were they, there was immersion then. <laughs> Today, most heretics do not immer, do not do immersion at all. Saint Fermilian's position will later be referenced by Saint Basil in his letter to Saint Amphilochius as precedent, giving his claim to the following: a practice from time immemorial greater weight. So St. Basil comes along and, and, and references him and, and in an approving way, anybody who interprets it otherwise is, is, does not understand how a saint works. A saint would never reference another saint only to reject him. If they were going to reject the teaching of a holy father, a predecessor, they would be silent about it. They would not have commemorated him. Uh, I think there's a, a Professor Erickson or some, some other who's written on this have have suggested that that he does not follow Saint Cyprian, even though he commemorates him. That's just not possible. The saints don't do that. There's going to be uh, any rejection of their teachings. They're not going to commemorate the teachings. Uh, in refutation of the idea of a spiritless baptism, in other words, a baptism of a simple water rite, as we saw in the on baptism text. Uh, 
Say, Familian wonders how they could hesitate to baptize anew those baptized without the Holy Spirit when the blessed Apostle Paul did as much with the baptism of the forerunner John. He wonders, Paul was inferior to the bishops of these times? So that these indeed can be uh, can by imposition of hands alone give the Holy Spirit to those heretics who come to the church, while Paul was unfit to give the Holy Spirit but needed to first baptize? So the question could at that time still be posed, for all shared the common ground of refusing the mysterological action of the Holy Spirit to heretics and schismatics. Very important point, which is lost today. It's been lost. They're not even on that page anymore, the heterodox. As we shall see with latter Latin theology and most clearly the new ecclesiology of Vatican II, this common ground is totally eroded. They've, 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 they've fulfilled what St. Cyprian said they would do, which was grant the Holy Spirit to the various heterodox. And he says it here as well. Let's hear what St. Cyprian says. He anticipates the future path to be taken by Latin ecclesiology. Those who supported accepting heretical baptism claimed that the one outside the church could obtain the grace of baptism by his disposition and faith. St. Familian rejects this idea, stating that those in schism or heresy possess a corrupt disposition and a false faith. St. Augustine will later concede, unfortunately, to heretics an empty baptism. Not unlike the, the unbaptism uh, version, the, the anonymous writer, in which grace is given but inoperative. That's how he says it. You go in and immediately you lose it, according to St. Augustine. This is uh, peculiar to his thinking. At, at Vatican II, notwithstanding Augustine's theology, because they went even further, much will be made of this point such that the bulk of the new ecclesiological views will claim the good disposition of faith of the dissidents of the heterodox as justification for accepting efficacy or fruitfulness among them. So in Vatican II, they, 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 they impart and they accept that all the heterodox, all those who are outside the church, schismatics, heretics, whatever they consider, they all have it because we just give them the good disposition. We give them the, the, uh, the, uh, the faith on a personal level. And so therefore the grace of God is active. And that's what the saints would not give and would not recognize. And it was a consensus of the day. Now, St. Dionysius, and this is the last uh, we have, St. Dionysius of Alexandria, very important figure. Uh, if you remember from some of the podcasts I did, we commemorated him in his writings about the, the actions of those courageous and saintly and uh, martyred Christians during the plague in Alexandria about the time of Pascha, and I think it was like 250 um, and that was him writing, talking about their, their love and, and giving their lives uh, in the midst of that plague, which are examples for all of us today. This is the same, same saint, and he's talking now, responding to the successor to Pope Stephen, Sixtus II, and he inform, uh, Dionysius informs us with a wide agreement in the East on the question of heretical baptism. So we have another witness here that there was a consensus in all of Asia Minor and in the East that they do not accept the legitimacy uh, of heretical baptism. It, quote, it is a fact that resolutions about this question have been passed in the largest synods of bishops. The fact that those who come over from the heresies are first instructed, then washed and cleansed afresh from the filth of the old unclean le leaven. And then another letter he sends to a presbyter in Rome, he says, the practicing of baptizing heretics is not of recent origin in Africa. 
a long while back, in the time of my Episcopal predecessors, it was adopted in the most populous dioceses and in church synods at Iconium, Synodve, and many other places. I would not think of upsetting their arrangements and involving them in strife and contention. So he's saying, I'm not going to do what the church in Rome does. I'm not going to, this is not necessary. You're trying to bully everybody and make them do whatever you do. Already we have this unfortunate stance in Rome. He says, it's not going to happen. I'm not, he says, you shall not move your neighbor's boundaries, which were fixed by your ancestors. He's quoting Deuteronomy. So that is a witness from St. Dionysius. We could go on, St. Dionysius has other things, but we don't have time. In baptism, the one, the whole Christ is put on. It's very important. St. Familiar and following the Holy Fathers before him sees baptism not only as the beginning or the first step in the process of salvation. So this is coming to correct this idea that there's a partial communion, there's a beginning of life in Christ just with water baptism. Look, it's the consummation, he says. It's the completion of grace. This is the Orthodox teaching. This might seem a little bit hard to, to get it, you know, to process for our rational minds. But when you're baptized, all of Christ is, is put on. You lack nothing, right? And, and, and it's not, there's nothing lacking in that's a partial, it's a partial initiation in the sense of a partial Christ is given in baptism. Now, these mysteries should not be seen as separate, like chrismation and communion. They all go together and they all play play a part in the uh, the the initiation process. But but Christ is totally given in, in every mystery. He gives and is given all of him. There's no division in Christ. When you commune, you commune, commune of the whole Christ, not a part. The whole Christ you commune. There is no division. Having put on Christ, been born from above, and received the seal of the Lord, the newly illumined lacks nothing, could not lack anything. And Clement of Alexandria says exactly the same thing. The whole Christ is imparted and the whole man is regenerated. This vision of baptism is the same vision expressed in the patristic text as early as the shepherd of Hermes in Clement of Alexandria, as I said, St. Nicholas Cavastulos and St. Seraphim of Seraph and many others. In Postchism West, we have incomplete communion as we talked about. Listen to this now. Eve Congar in 1939, he writes, the church includes members who appear to be outside her. They belong to the church insofar as they belong to Christ. It's clear. Clearly, he lays down what will be accepted in Vatican II, that there's a partial, incomplete uh, involvement, participation in Christ. He says, because what unites them to Christ is a fiber of his mystical body, a constituent element of his church. So this is not the patristic teaching. This is totally inconsistent with what we've been talking about. This is the, the vision is holistic. It's all or nothing. And this is partial. It's impossible. You're not a little bit pregnant. There's no a little bit pregnant in the Orthodox Church. You're all or nothing. You all, you have Christ, you're in Christ, or you've fallen away from Christ. Now, we can talk about the spiritual life and the dynamic, but we're talking about the mysteries now. We're talking about what Christ gives, all right? The idea of partial communion with Christ, although baptized into Christ, fundamentally sets this ecclesiology at odds with the patristic vision in which baptism immediately gives man complete union and perfection in Christ and the church. So we have the underpinnings here of the great theological divide that will develop over time. In the approaches of all three of our Holy Fathers, St. Cyprian, St. Dionysius, and St. Familian, we can already see outlined these important distinguishing marks of the two that I'll, I'll mention two right here. The distinction between a Caribbean economia, exactitude and economy, which will be filled in by St. Basil the Great, who'll give a more of a developed 
look at that, of baptism being simultaneously a new birth and perfection. We see that in all three of our fathers. In these and other aspects, one can already sense stirring underground along this fault line of the baptism of heretics, the great ecclesiological fracture of East and West, the first theological steps away from the consensus patrum in the West with regard to the unity of the church and the mystery of baptism will come with St. Augustine's unique and innovative response to the Donatists. And we'll look at that probably the second session uh, next time. Ο μέγιστος εκπροτυπούς αμπαρθένε